Welcome to Casting Light, the entertainment lighting podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin, and with me is my fabulous co-host, Teresa Unfree. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at Podcasting Light, and you can also find us on Facebook. Teresa, where can people find more information about you and your company? Hey, Jason. You can find information on Taj Event Productions at tajeventproductions.com, or like us on Facebook at Taj Event Productions, or follow us on Twitter at Taj Events. Today, our guest is Matt DeLong. He's currently a product manager at Roscoe, though he's worn several different hats there, and he's also an independent lighting designer. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really glad that you're here. You know, the, the, the three things Casting Light likes to focus on are designers who work across multiple areas of the business, film, television, theater, uh, events. Uh, and the, the second thing is people that make designs happen. These are the lighting directors, the programmers, the production electricians, the, the, the software designers. And I think they all have something to add to this conversation. And the third thing is alternate professions for people who are in lighting, want to be in lighting, but you know maybe they have different talents, different things that they can offer, whether that's uh, fixture design or um, account representation or uh, software programming. Uh, and I know you have some uh, some thoughts about uh, some of the above. Yeah, we sort of, from the manufacturer side, fall into an interesting world. Um, I was out in the field before, and the opportunity came up. I actually found it on the ESTA job board at the time, which I guess is the PAUSA job board today, uh, that Roscoe was looking for a tech support person. And I went, hmm, that's interesting. Um, I'm between gigs. I needed a job. I had no idea that the gel people, um, which is what I thought of Roscoe at the time, were based in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut, and they went, hey, yeah, you know, this seems like a good fit. You can have your nights and weekends back, and we have a health insurance package. And I went, wow, that's fantastic. I know what I'm getting at the end of every week. Um, and it sort of evolved from there. So, Okay. Well, so I know that you attended CCSU. I did. Um, what, was that, what was that like? What can you tell us about that? And how did you end up there? Sure. Um, CCSU is Central Connecticut State University. Uh, they are a relatively small theater program based out of New Britain, Connecticut. Uh, I actually had my heart set on going to a school called MCLA, uh, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, um, out in the North Adams area, uh, which is in that nice little cluster of summer theater. It's a fantastic area. I'd love to live up there. Um, Mass Mocha and that. Yeah, Mass Mocha, Shake & Co., uh, Williamstown, Berkshire Theater Festival. It, it's just wow. this little mecca. Jacob's Pillow's up there. Um, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody. It's like being in Manhattan. It's where a lot of people from Manhattan go over the summer. But but don't swing a dead cat up there, please. <laughs> no. Um, so I was talking to the tech theater director at the time up there, and he went, yeah, this program isn't really fit for you. Um, it was one of the things that's really unique about this industry is – a lot of times if somebody's not right for a gig um, as a designer, a lot of people are honest with their clients to say, hey, I'm not the right person for you, but do you know who is? And they pass the gig along, which is one of the really great things about working with people in this industry. And he said, you need to go to Central Connecticut. Um, that tech director then, or tech professor, came to teach at Central um, afterwards and wound up being one of my best friends. Um, we still keep in touch today. He's uh, worked in Manhattan extensively. His name is Ken Mooney. Um, he's oh, down okay. in, I know Ken Mooney. Yeah. Um, Ken is one of my dearest friends in the world. Uh, he's down in Florida right now working for Feld Entertainment in their costume division. So That's awesome. Um, so Central has a uh, 
BA, um, BFA program. And at the time, I think we were really heavy on BFA students. There might have been 10 or 12 of us. Um, they have their primary space is a 30 by 30 or 40 by 40 black box theater with 144 dimmers. We just started getting moving lights at the time. Uh, I think we had three or four studio spots, and we had a little NSI console that somebody thought it was a great idea to get the one that had the joystick on it, um, which we've all learned over time. For, for a while, the joystick was the thing everyone wanted to build onto their small moving light consoles, and it just it never really worked. It's great until you put move speed into the equation, and then you tap the joystick, and you know, four minutes later, the fixture hits mm-hmm. its mark. So, <laughs> um, But you know, console technology then was still uh, express-based if you were in the ETC world. There wasn't really a great moving light solution. Hog, I guess, was the only other player in the game, um, or the biggest player in the game at the time. I know I'm excluding a lot of people. Um, But, yeah, I did my BFA for design and technical theater. I focused on lighting design, and I started working for the local IA branches um, throughout Connecticut, pushing boxes and doing sets and lights, whatever I can get my hands on, uh, to try and make some money and uh, earn my chops a little bit. Uh, and But uh, you also went on tour as a moving light technician. I did. Um, I went on a tour. Uh, we built and opened a really, really beautiful show. Uh, we had 88 MAC-2s. It was really, um, for me, at the cusp of going, hey, you could do everything with moving lights. I think we had six or eight conventionals on the show. Um, unfortunately, the show wasn't a, a great fit for me, and I moved on uh, about five or six months in. Um, but it was one of the most beautiful pieces of production that I've worked on. On this tour, you know, the jobs you were doing working with the locals up in Connecticut, what was the most surprising thing you discovered about the real world after having come out of CCSU? Um, it's interesting. You know, a lot of the um, the corporate side of the business really starts to come out even when you start getting into local gigs. Yeah, you could show up and push boxes and put things together and hang lights on truss. Um, but the politics of working between the venue planners and the IA, um, at the time the state was in a little bit of a shift. Uh, Local 74 had most of the, uh, the theater in Wallingford, which was the Oakdale at the time. It's got somebody else's corporate name behind it that I can't remember now. There's too many to count. Um, and we had the Meadows Music Center, but uh, they were being bought out by Clear Channel at the time, which I think is part of Live Nation now. If it's not owned by somebody else, another layer up. Um, But a lot of that came in, and working with uh, some of these union crews that have been newly integrated, um, there's a a little bit of finesse of trying to keep your head down, your mouth shut, and do good work, um, and trying to stand out at the same time. And I think everybody who's getting into the industry uh, has kind of learned you can make a really bad impression first, um, or you can try and go above and beyond, or you can try and sit in the middle for a while until you get your bearings. Um, but there's a, a wide variety of different skill sets as you walk onto different gigs and trying to find your place within that without stepping on people's toes is uh, always an interesting thing. It's a fine line to walk. And, you know, okay, coming yeah. coming in with a, a little more of a professional training background, especially at the time before uh, ETCP existed in the way that it does now, um, and working with people who don't have a background in um, design, not as much, not that I had really you know, cut my teeth as a designer, but I was going through the paces and um, trying to learn where you sit within that world. And right. um, there's a little bit of status earning and proving yourself within the, the local crews as well. You know, so you mentioned ETCP. I think it's worth mentioning, uh, you know, we are here and uh, we are here recording this podcast at Plaza, which administers and runs ETCP. Uh, I am a tremendous fan of the of ETCP certification for uh, 
riggers and for electricians, and I, I happen to hold an ETCP certification myself. Um, do you have any thoughts on ETCP? Um, I think anything that we can do for higher education within the industry is only going to make everybody better. Um, I know that there's some back and forth um, on a lot of the chat boards and a lot of bar side conversation about liabilities, but I think at the end of the day, the more people you can educate, um, you know, high tide raises all boats. The, the best that we could do is to offer people continuing education. Um, well, and, and, I, and I would say that the, the whole liability issue has been long dealt with by Plaza, and it, it seems to be, an, at this point, it seems to almost be an excuse people use. Uh, because all you need to do is read some of the bulletins from Plaza to see that those concerns, uh, th- th- there is no need to have those concerns uh, about uh, duty to act or, you know, depending on your position on, on a job site. Uh, so it's it's strange to still hear that. You know, I think um, with more people being certified, the message is getting out better. Um, the message board trolls will always hide behind their computers and and put things out. But that's with anything. If you go on YouTube and watch a video, there's a ton of trolls waiting to, to launch on something. Um, I think ETCP is absolutely going in the right direction. Um, the standard committees that are very, very busy working within Plaza right now are doing fantastic work. Um, I know the rigging group is completely busy with everything they're working on. The controls group is very, very busy. Um, the, the organization has done a lot of, lot of good things for the industry in general. No, there's no, there's no, uh, no argument about that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one, of, one, one of my concerns is that, you know, the uh, amount of staging accidents we've seen over the last, say, five years, uh, I, I feel like it's only a matter of time before there's going to be a congressional subcommittee on stage safety. And, I, you know, I think our best uh, hope is that the, the ETCP uh, certification program becomes the standard because they're going to end up with the standard either way. Yeah, um, whether it gets legislated upon us or we take it upon ourselves, and I think it's probably going to come from both directions. Um, my personal feeling about it is there's probably not enough gear inspection going on, and part of it is we're always trying to go bigger, better, badder, um, you know, trying to hit those three points of cheaper, faster, more exciting uh, for production. And we're pushing this gear well beyond a lot of what it was designed for. Um, we're pushing it beyond its lifespan in some cases, I think. Um, but if you look at, you know, what we used to do with a 120K park can rig now versus throwing a bunch of moving lights up, the loads change completely. And, um, you know, the ETCP folks can speak to this much, much better than I can. Um, but we're doing a lot more production work. It's becoming more prevalent. And I think that the technology push um, we need to catch up and maintain, um, you know, especially when you see small gigs are the worst ones. Um, in my personal opinion, but yeah, some of the photos I've seen, <coughs> just people posting the, these horrifying accidents. That, you know, they they were horrifying in that they happened, but they're small enough that they don't make you know even you know even you know state level news. I think the ones that are more horrifying are the ones that don't happen. Um, you know, if Fair you enough. go out, uh, are the ones that like when when you've done something unsafe and nothing actually happens from it, so that you figure it's okay to continue to do that. Sort of thing, um, yeah, and you know, I don't know. Moving light to the top of this, we have this culture of little county fairs up in the northeast, where right. um, every little rural town has their little fair. And if you look at some of the stages that are set up there, uh, it is just atrocious, and to the point where you know, I text my ETCP friends and go, "Oh my god, did you see this?" And everybody goes, "Yeah, I wouldn't go within a hundred feet of that." Right. Um, but it's, I'm trying not to pin it down on anybody specifically, right? Um, but it's folks who have a lack of training who. Um, the tent company now gets called on to put up something that can hold some lights. Right. Um, you know, and it's just as a four-letter word. It's just a few lights. Um, 
it's just a little bit of a roof. Um, you know, I've even seen tents set up on top of temporary stages, and you go, and they're tied down to the stage. It's like, you just turn that whole thing into a big sail. Right. Yeah, and, and then, of course, you know, uh, for, the, you know the, for these country fairs, the, this sort of thing, you know, the, the rig goes up, and it stays up. So that becomes multiple days. Yeah, so that becomes standard operating procedure because nothing happened, nothing went wrong. Everything was fine this time; it'll be fine next time, and we'll just keep doing what we're doing because you know if it's not broken, why fix it? Uh, So I mean, I mean that was a bit uh, that was a bit uh, of a a sidetrack, but it's it's definitely something that I feel really really passionate about. Well, and we have to, Um, you know, it's people's lives. There's nothing that we could take. You know, you you can't take it in jest. Um, I don't know how much you guys follow Penn and Teller, but there was an article uh, that featured them on the American Airlines magazine. I spend a lot of time on planes now, (laughs) so I read a lot of the seatback stuff. Um, But Teller came out and said, firefighters, police officers, first responders, these people risk their lives every day to do good things and help people. In the entertainment industry, there's absolutely no reason that anybody should ever have their safety even remotely put at risk. Um, in their production planning, if they think they're going to do something that's even remotely dangerous, they take it in baby steps. They build up. It's like fight choreography. Right. Um, you build up. You find a way to do it safely. You work through every possible solution, and you do it right. It's entertainment. At the end of the day, the show doesn't have to go on. Um, people can't get hurt. Well, that, that's true. And, but you know, especially in, the, in, the, in, a, in a day where we have computer-aided engineering, there's simply no reason not to have been able to game out all the possible scenarios and is it an outdoor event? Is it an outdoor event with a you know with a tent roof or a, a, a truss roof or scaff you know a scaff you know whatever the thing is? You can figure out the result on the resultant loads if wind comes at a certain amount of miles per hour with a certain number of second gusts for a certain amount of time, and you can develop an action plan based on that. There's a, a summer festival that I program at Lincoln Center, which um, posted on the walls of the production offices has the exact things that need to be done in the cases of uh, 30 miles an hour, three second, three, three second gusts and 40 miles an hour and, and, and four second gusts. And I, I just, I, I, I don't know, consider, considering the amount of losses one can uh, incur even monetarily, if these things go south, why you choose not to do that, why you would choose not to have those standard operating guidelines and have gamed this out ahead of time. It's part of, I think, the industry growing up where there's not as many lawyers looking down on what we do. We're still a fraction of the world. We're this little blip. And um, if you look at how the whole industry is going now, um, it's becoming more corporate from the standpoint of people who do rentals and distribution are learning to be better businesses because a lot of them were folks like ourselves who all came out of the production world and didn't necessarily have a business background. Um, I didn't take business classes when I did my BFA. It wasn't part of it. I think it absolutely should be. Um, It should be listening with a lot of other things. I kind of wish I did when I went to school. (laughs) Um, Even from, you know, if you're freelancing, knowing how to contract yourself in with somebody, cover your own butt, um, a lot of my worst failings were not knowing what questions to ask going into something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it sits on me. Um, you don't know what to ask until you learn. Um, but having those lessons taught to you. Uh, but if you look at the theme park industry, they have all of this insurance and liability, and they have those policies set up. Um, if you go backstage at major amusement parks, they have a 60-inch TV hanging on the wall with weather patterns. And it's got 
thunder information, rain information, wind information, so that they know exactly where they need to be, how far out they are, what type of warnings they need to issue for guest safety and for the safety of their employees. Um, they also have really good lockout tagout procedures, which is something we don't deal with a whole lot in the entertainment industry. That's very true, and it and it and, and I, I don't think there's enough understanding of how how bad that is that we don't have lockout tagout procedures, essentially of any kind. I mean, how many rigs have you disconnected under load before? Well, none in the none in the, none since I've since I've gotten my cert. I can say that. Um, but you know, even unknowingly, somebody goes turns a disconnect on, somebody turns a disconnect off. There should be a lock on it. Yeah. Um, and it's not that hard. It's it's a hasp. Um, yeah, it's those type of things that you look, um, you know, fall rest procedures. We've come just such a long way even in the past 10 or 15 years in fall rest. Yeah, we certainly have. I've started noticing more and more with, um, well, with the rigging procedures and with uh, scissor lift procedure just in general recently over the last, what was it? It's been like the last at least a couple of years. Yeah. Um, where I mean, man, I used to climb on the top, tops of yeah, things. We all that stood I, on the railings. We, I've, I've climbed out of buckets onto things and been like, "Yeah, okay, I'm good without any sort of harness on." So I'm loving to see where this is all going. Now. Well, I mean, we're I finally mean, starting to become a lo- lot more safe with. You know, there was a time when I was I, I was like you know doing like the night shift at uh, a venue in somewhere in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, yeah, renters would come in and use our equipment, and uh, we had a, uh, a renter using our our genie with people climbing up and out of it into into our grid. And I said, "You can't do that." And they said, "Well, then we can't work. We simply can't have those kinds of uh, uh, rules levied against us. Mm-hmm. Um, we we need to do our thing, especially when you know that the organization is toothless and won't back you up. What do you do?" It- it's a fine line. Um, this came up, uh, I've sat on a couple panel discussions at LDI, USITT, some of the industry events, and we've had students ask, um, what do you do when somebody puts you into a situation? And it's, again, it's a very, very fine line to walk. Yeah. Um, if you're uncomfortable doing something, the answer should always be, hey, I'm not comfortable, I don't think this is safe. Right. And either it's a teaching opportunity for somebody to show you that it is, um, or you learn that you probably don't want to be working with those people anymore. Um, there's a couple important things that they don't teach in university programs. It's when to say no, mm-hmm. um, or at least I didn't learn. Um, I shouldn't uh, put this no, upon everybody. And when to say, hey, I quit. Um, there's real value in it. It's not something you should do all the time. The industry is far too small to burn bridges. Right. Um, everybody knows each other. You know, The three of us have never met before and we probably have more people in common than we realize um but you know it's well i've met her well we've yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but we've sidetracked pretty far off of where we're going no, no, that's, <laughs> that's that's fine I, I mean um and you know I, I think it's also worth mentioning the it just because you feel uncomfortable with something doesn't mean that it's unsafe and because i've had people also tell me i won't do that thing you just asked me to do and it's something that's completely standard operating procedure right. for what we do, and they just didn't feel comfortable doing it, which is kind of, no, it's not unsafe. You just don't know, and that's okay, but don't, but don't frame it as something that's a or, safety issue. Or it's not safe for you. Um, if you don't feel comfortable standing then on an IBM 100 safe. feet yeah. up in the air, you're absolutely not safe, and you probably shouldn't do it until you get the reassurance of the proper training to, right. to know how to handle that situation. I totally a, fair. I had a great learning experience doing the same thing. I'm not comfortable on scaffold, and I had... I was told I'm a really good grounder. I can ground a scaffold like no one's business, but I won't. I have a hard time on top of it. And it's not safe for me if I'm not feeling comfortable up there. So 
It's not that it's not safe, just not for me. You know, it's good that you mentioned the corporatization of the business. Yes. That's definitely something that I wanted to touch on and wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Um, you know, clearly, clearly the industry is changing. Clearly, corporatization isn't going away. And, you know, I mean, I felt like the creation and the growth of PRG was the sort of the sort of watershed moment of this is what this is now. This is what our business is now. Um, and I feel like there's been a lot of negative sentiment towards that. Um, what are, what what are the good elements of corporatization of of the entertainment entertainment lighting business? Oh god! Or of so, any part of entertainment? There's so many good things, and you know, people will demonize um, big companies. I've seen it happen to us. Um, you see it happen with uh, the large rental companies. I don't want to name anybody in particular because you could pin that on anybody. Right. Um, it makes it hard for small businesses, certainly, um, but it can raise the bar for the industry. You know. Uh, in order for, from a manufacturing standpoint, for products to be accessible to the market and for quality products to come out, you've got to have some backing. Uh, you've got to have some good brains in the room. Uh, yes, you can make a hundred of something, but the price is certainly going to be higher. You don't know if you're getting the same quality unless you have somebody who is extremely passionate about it, building them in their garage or you know in a building with two or three people. Um, so. It certainly makes technology progression so much better. It makes access to product better. Um, if you look at um, some of the rental companies, if you get some good competition, and it's certainly true within the manufacturing world as well, um, there's a push for everybody to be better because if your neighbor's better than you, they're going to get the business. If rental company X does better than Y because their fixtures are newer, the shutters aren't bent, you get good working plugs on them, you make sure that you have a good working lamp before it goes out the door. And, you know, of course, there's the occasional thing that happens. Either UPS destroys a box or a lamp filament shakes loose in shipping because it was probably, you know, closer to its lifespan anyway. Right. Um, but you certainly see it within the world of moving lights. You see it within, um, in our case, the world of custom gobos. Uh, Roscoe's had some stiff competition. And when I came to the company, a custom gobo was almost as thick as one of my fingers. I mean, it looked like a coaster, a full-color custom gobo. And yeah, you needed special channel holders for them. Yeah, um, they had to fit into the iris slot. Yeah. And if you look at what we're doing now, um, it is four layers of glass that are lined up under a microscope and laminated into place. And it's a little bit thicker than a steel gobo yeah. um, with a little bit of a metal bezel. And it goes right into the, the gate of the fixture where it belongs so you get a better focus on it. The color quality has become so much better. Um, but it's just because... as an end user, I can I can yes. attest to that. Yes, uh, I have I've had photorealistic multi-part gobos built uh, constructed for moving lights from Roscoe that I literally couldn't believe that they looked like the photo I sent. Yeah, and if you look, um, yeah, the moving light manufacturers have become so much better with their optics. They become better at heat management. Um, they become better with lumen output. Um, I think there's a certain limit to where we can all get with those things. Um, you know, when you start seeing video resolution that's past what the human eye can render. Um, for now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and how bright is bright enough is right. a question that I've been asking. Uh, if you could do it with limited power consumption, it's fantastic. Uh, but when you look at, well, it's all relative, right? You put everybody in a black room, you let their eyes adjust for a few minutes. How bright does it really need to be? Right. Now, that's that's an excellent question and it's uh, you know i know that we've lost um i don't want to lose this 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 sort of topic of conversation but i you know this something else that's worth talking about is we've lost we've lost effects and technologies that we used to be able to use um i kind of miss oil projections but in a world where 
uh, where, where your front light is 40, 1200 watt moving wash lights, uh, you simply can't use an overhead projector to project uh, the, this cool oil projection on your upstage psych. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, the other question is how bright is bright enough? Um, I don't, I don't know. And I, and I, and I, and I kind of wish manufacturers thought a little bit about replacing things that we've lost because now we can't use them because your fixture is too bright for us to use them. Yeah. Well, are they hoping though, that you can actually use their fixtures to do the same effect? I mean, is that, or, or is there an emerging question? technology there, that needs to come out and replace that? So that needs instead to replace of it having, on. um, oil on an overhead projector, um, which I saw the updated version on a Grateful Dead show years ago. They had a digital overhead projector where they did it and then put it up on a big several thousand watt video projector and projected it out onto the screen. Um, so it's technology sort of merging over sure. um, where they did the organic part. Uh, or is it somebody sitting creating video content um, and you see video pushing into our world harder and harder? Yes. Um, and it's affecting everybody. Uh, it's affecting the lighting rigs. It's affecting the rigging crew, certainly. Um, you've got a whole other technical staff coming out with media servers and operators and um, content providers, which is a whole new group of uh, creative people that didn't play so much anymore. When you see, you know, the digital projectors that look like moving heads now, in addition to, you know, the big stock projectors that people, you know, hang up to do iMag and those type of things, or video screens, and that technology has certainly leaped in the past few years as well with the improvement of LEDs. Which, you know, which kind of brings us back to... I don't. I don't know that all of this would have been possible without the kind of the business of the business uh, support, uh, because obviously it takes a lot more uh, resources to build a thirty-five thousand lumen projector than it does to build a overhead projector. So I mean, I guess that's that's one good way that it also helps end users even more than it helps. Um, you know, as as the business becomes more corporatized, it, it helps end users as well as the people in the companies themselves. Well, and even you know, take this in a, a somewhat different tract. You can look at big rental companies can offer things that smaller companies aren't able to offer. Them. There's a certainly a wider range of inventory available to their customers, but their employees have a better shot at health benefits. Um, they can probably get a better pay scale. Um, it certainly exists within the manufacturing world. Um, there are real benefits to going corporatized. Um, we have a, a young woman who just started working for us in our customer service center who's a lighting designer, and she was telling me that she actually has somebody who uh, she pays a service to help book gigs for her. And they take a, a portion of whatever the booking fee is uh, or whatever her design fee is, but it's a little bit of a, a corporatization of her design work. So that well, she I think that's called an agent, right? Yeah, really. I mean, she has an agent to book lighting design work for her. And um, I've been out of the industry from a design point full time for almost 10 years now. And I went, wow, that's a great idea. Um, And she has set terms that are pre-negotiated on a lot of things. um, But it also helps her collect cash, um, which is another part of the business. You know, chasing people down for cash is one of the worst things in the world. And it certainly doesn't build better business relationships for you and your prospective employer, you know, whoever it may be. So are these some of the things that happen when people that do not know the business of business and only know the business of lighting try to start companies? Um, they they end up in, in positions where they need to chase people themselves over cash, where they have this difficulty uh, hunting down uh, work and handling contracts. Um, so these are the thing. So these are things that people that understand the business of business can 
can uh, help those of us who only understand the business of lighting. Well, and, you know, let's be honest. Time really is money. If your time can be spent in your drafting software doing your next plot rather than making phone calls, trying to chase down the money from your last gig or trying to book the next one, um, you're going to do better work. You have other time for other things. You know, it's mm-hmm. as much as we all geek out and live in this industry, um, which is one of the things I really love. Everybody who's in this isn't in it to get rich. If you are, you're in the completely wrong business. Exactly. Um, everybody really loves what they do. Everybody's passionate about it. You wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, but we all do have lives outside of our design work and our work in the industry and having the ability to do some of those things rather than chasing people down at whatever hour it is to try and get to them. I can speak to that. It, it, it was an eye-opening thing for Jason, my husband, and I when we opened our company. When we started Taj, it was that that chasing down for, well, not just money, but even just for floor plans. For <laughs> well, we, You spend so much time in the business of the business now where it's not the same. I actually miss focusing lights. <laughs> well, and a little bit of it goes back to what we said earlier, um, knowing what questions to ask. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says, I want you to do X theater show, your first response is, okay, this is how much it is. Um, please provide me with gro- or please provide me with the following. Here are the terms of our agreement. Right. And you set everything up in advance. That way there are very reasonable expectations on both sides. Because right. if you don't negotiate it out, you, nobody knows what the, the rules of the game are anymore. Right. Well, and going back to the corporatization of these larger companies, these larger rental houses and stuff too, it also does help uh, the, one of the, I guess, the positives of it is it does help those of us who are a smaller company who doesn't have our own inventory to actually be able to do something great with great with the newer technology, which I do have to say, I mean, I do appreciate the fact that there was somebody out there that had the money I could put this hall together so that I could go, I need to rent these great fixtures from you to do something really different, and they're available for me, and I don't have to own them yet. Oh, and from a designer point, it frees you up to actually specify what you want. Um, In the smaller world, it's, I need X number of these fixtures, and they come back and say, we have these. Right. They're close, and you go, no, 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 I needed that specific animation wheel, and then the company has to face either sub-renting them, trying to continue to switch your spec. Uh, and sometimes it's acceptable, sometimes it's not. Right. Um, or buying the gear. And with the cycle in which new products get released these days, um, it's very aggressive. You know, there's a new moving light on the market, I would say, every 12 to 18 months. And I'm sure one of the moving light manufacturers is going, no, it's faster than that. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's certainly a technology battle. And, yeah. again, it goes back to sustainability in the industry of, what is the life of a fixture? What is the technology upgrade really getting us? Um, do I really need to be specking the latest and greatest thing because I can? Or are there other tools I could do my job with and potentially save my employer money? Right. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that um, if you read the, it's the uh, Nook's article on the back page of um, Projection Lights and Staging News, uh, he does he's a lot He's a fabulous of designer. Um, he's a fabulous designer and... You know, it's one of the things that really can get people the furthest in this industry is learning how to work with people. And it comes well clear through um, the words that he's writing. You know, it really jumps off the page is knowing what the limits are, knowing how to compromise, knowing how to work with um, different disciplines, but going, hey, I really don't need this latest and greatest thing. I could settle with X to fit the budget. Um, 
you know, think with your head in the sky and your feet on the ground when right. it comes down to it. Design the biggest, baddest thing you can and then scale it down to what the available uh, resources, resources are. are. Yeah. Speaking of design, you know, I, I, I didn't realize you'd been out of the uh, independent lighting design uh, side of things for so long. I know I, I had saw some lighting porn from you um, from the from Hair at the Warner Theater in Connecticut. Um, boy, I'm trying to think of how far that goes back. That was probably six or eight years ago. I still freelance when I can. Um, a lot of it is community theater work, uh, which certainly has its ups and its downs. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of fun, wonderful things that you could do. Um, the pressure isn't on quite so much. Um, but a lot of the niceties that you get with doing professional gigs in terms of budgets and seeing things done on time, um, you know, because it's all people who really love what they love doing it, not as their first job. It's they're doing it as their second or third job. Um, it's not paying the bills certainly. Um, but yeah, I, I love getting out. One of the things that Roscoe's really given me the availability to do is I started a family and, uh, that certainly cut down on. Uh, my freelance time to be able to get out and do things. Uh, the last thing I did was a production of Young Frankenstein last year. Um, luckily at the community theater, I live in Thomaston, Connecticut. It's literally off my backyard about a sixteenth of a mile. I could see the building from home. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, the How building fun. was built in 1883. It's this beautiful little Victorian theater. Um, so I do get to go play, um, but I don't get to play in the way that I used to where I'd be able to pick up uh, you know, things that were better paying or uh, certainly more accessible to me. But, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, 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 it's really good that you have that outlet. And um, it's just so great that you have it. Because, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was how that worked with your position at Roscoe. But clearly having the stuff so close to home means that um, you can just kind of do it. And sort of, uh, is, that, is that true? You can just kind of fit it in wherever it fits? Um, we don't have a, a corporate policy for um, that type of work, you know, creative work outside of Roscoe, so long as it's not a product development thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to go out and design or paint or do whatever it is that you love to do um, in the industry, uh, they're completely okay with that, uh, so long as it doesn't conflict with your work schedule. So what I try and do is schedule a little bit of time off to go do these gigs so I can actually put the time into them that, that they need. Um, and a lot of times that means, you know, taking a Thursday, Friday, and then working through the weekend on them. Uh, but we're very open to those things. So, well, I, excellent. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they have that understanding. That especially people that came to them as lighting designers are still going to want you to. Know, Roscoe's based around a lot of people who lived in the industry for so long, and we all sort of have that itch. Um, I've learned to scratch it a little more with product development. So, um, you know, we start from the ground up with a lot of projects. Uh, you know, things just don't land in our laps, and they have to get finished. It, it gets written from a spec all the way through. Um, to a finished product sitting on the shelf somewhere. And I found almost as much joy in that in doing lighting design and, you know, being a technical director where it's a lot of similar challenges. Um, They're just driven in a very different direction. It's, I need this widget that does this specific thing and then having to go find that widget to integrate into a product um, or having it designed for you. And then, you know, it's just creativity in a different, it's creativity in a completely different world. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you've held a bunch of different positions with Roscoe, um, <laughs> but specifically project, you know, or product manager. What, what, like, what, what is that? Um, what are the responsibilities? What is the workload for that for that position? Um, the reason I laugh so hard is I have bounced around Roscoe um, quite a bit, and part of it's been uh, putting people into the right jobs uh, and the company you know, figuring that out with the employees. One of the things that they're very, very good at is trying to put people where they're best used. It works in everybody's best interest. 
um, put somebody where they're going to be happy, where they can be fruitful and productive, and it you know it's a win-win. Um, so I was the floor product manager up until last month, um, so that was about six years, and I was the fog product manager for about four years, five years. Um, so what product managers do at Roscoe is uh, you're responsible for uh, product development, uh, which at the time had included uh, competitive research, market research, so going out to folks like yourself saying, hey, we're going to build a new fog machine. What do you think you want in it, or what do you have to have? Um, interviewing people who actually use the things because those are the people who are going to buy them, and they, they know best um, in most cases. <laughs> and then Sometimes. Uh, managing the research and development phase of you know, it's certainly not I'm going to design and build a circuit board unless that's where your expertise comes from. Um, but managing that phase of part selection, um, software debugging, uh, working with the industrial design team to say, okay, what does this thing need to look like? Can it be a plain black sheet metal box or does it need to be sexy in some way, shape, or form? Um, does it need curves? Does it need color? Um, and uh, getting the product on the shelf through... Uh, product life cycle issues. So there's always ongoing quality control. Uh, there's the opportunity to improve the product. There's the opportunity to um, value engineer things. And I always cringe to use that word because people see it as a bad thing. Um, but it's, are there more durable components? Are there more cost-effective components that don't compromise the integrity of the product? Uh, all the way through, it's time to, to say goodbye to an old friend. And uh, we take it very, very hard. Uh, to see something go. Uh, watching Colorine go was really emotional for a lot of us. Um, for those of you who haven't worked with Colorine, it was lamp dip. Um, it was a lacquer that you were able to dip a light bulb into, and it would color the outside glass of the light bulb. And it was one of the original products for Roscoe from the very beginning, and we're um, 105 or 106 years old this year. Oh, my gosh. Um, but light bulbs weren't frosted or colored. Uh, it was clear light bulbs and marquees, which is where the product came from. Uh, but it got to the point where the raw materials were um, getting more and more difficult to quality control, and the cost of the product uh, was not where it needed to be, and we weren't able to maintain the quality, and certainly the demand for that type of a product has decreased over the years. Right. So There's no surprise there. No, not at all. Um, and, you know, that was a little bit of the, the beginnings of people taking color inside, was people taking these colored light bulbs in and then going, well, what else can we do with this now? Um, so it was the, you know, the beginning of uh, lighting design as we know it today, certainly. I see. That's, that, that's, that's really cool, actually. Um, so Roscoe's really been, uh, even before there was color and lighting design, Roscoe was helping make that happen. Yeah. Um, the other original product to the company was Film Cement. Um, for gluing together film in the editing rooms uh, because editing wasn't done on your iPhone or in right. um, iMovie or Final Cut Pro or whatever people are using these days. It was somebody sat in a room uh, the old school way and took the film, found the frame, hacked it up, found another frame, hacked it up, glued it back together. Um, so I've done that on the personal level. With Is, is that what it is, is the, the tape? Um, it was actually a liquid at the time. Oh, uh, it was a liquid at the time. Um, and I don't know if it melted the acetate or yeah. if it had some other properties. I feel um, like I had something when we were working I, with 8mm. What I do know is both of those products were highly flammable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we certainly moved away from that world. Um, Wasn't everything flammable back I think then? So. <laughs> Probably. Um, you know, it's certainly not stuff that you want to be living with every day. So, you know, you mentioned two products that I, that I really want to talk a little bit more about. Uh, one is fog. 
uh, you know, I know there's still um, there's still some fear of atmosphere products. Uh, you know, people that insist they can't be in a room with that an atmosphere product, patrons that start coughing as soon as they see the smoke, whether or not it's affecting them, whether or not they can they can even detect it in the air. Um, what what can what can us end users do to help alleviate those issues? Um, I think some of it's education. Uh, you know, setting up reasonable expectations for everyone is always step one. So if there's fog being used in a show, there certainly should be warning signs posted. Uh, on the Plaza website, there's stuff that you could print off. There's great language that you can use. Um, it's the same thing as strobe lights. We know that strobes typically don't trigger seizures unless you get them to a very specific uh, hertz rate. But people have reactions. People don't like to be exposed to these things. Um, I don't want to say atmospherics are intrusive, but they break the fourth wall. They come wherever the air flows. Right. So setting up expectations, I think, of saying um, there's going to be simulated gunfire on stage. There's going to be atmospherics used. There's haze. There's fog. There's whatever it is, um, is step number one. From a management standpoint of the industry, the plaza certainly has worked very hard. Roscoe has worked extremely hard over the years at making sure what we're doing is safe. Um, proving the technology out. Uh, there was a whole actors' equity study that was done, uh, which is available on their website, which talks about the long-term health and safety effects of being exposed to atmospherics. And a lot of that was for performers and for folks like ourselves who are living with the stuff every day, um, not so much the audience members, but the information is certainly out there, and the studies are you know, big, thick, heavy pages. Um, but the, at the end of the day, the reality is um, some of it's psychosomatic. Uh, you see smoke and you cough. Um, it's the same thing as if you're walking down the street and see somebody smoking a cigarette, uh, some people cough, um, but it is a material, it's an aerosol that's going into the atmosphere. So it can trigger an asthmatic reaction. Um, some people are more sensitive to it than others. Um, but it's certainly something to discuss on stage with everybody who's involved saying, if you are prone to having these reactions, please let us know. We'll make accommodations. We'll use the product properly. Um, but it's no different than, um, pollen being in the air grass clippings or dust or dirt or anything else that gets kicked up right. by the wind or generated by humans or by nature. Um, you can have an asthmatic reaction from anything that gets into the air column. Uh, one of the things that I think gets missed a lot uh, with the actor's equity information is the actor's equity list is there to say there is data available for this product so that you can use it properly. It's not it's on the list, and yes, you could use it in any way that you want. Right. Um, if you go to the manufacturers or you go to the actor's equity site um, or to Plaza or anybody else who's involved, if you look at uh, the product-specific information, it will say if you're using XFOG machine 100% volume for this time duration, and it's in a nice little table that was made up in Excel, um, you should be this far away from the product for this many seconds. So that is what they consider the, the safe limit for regular exposure. I see. Uh, and so, and what what are the technologies that that, that you're using now in, in the construction and the uh, development of, of of these devices? The, the things that make them uh, safer, the things that make them better, the things that make them more efficient, and uh, the things that, that that make them just work work better. Um, the technology has progressed, but it hasn't made gigantic technological leaps. Um, basically, the way a fog machine works is there's three major components. Um, there is a thermostat of some kind, which is usually integrated into a circuit card, so that controls the temperature of the heater. Um, there is the heating block or heating element where the fluid gets vaporized. So, uh, And then you have a pump 
which moves the fluid out of whatever reservoir tank it's in uh, into the heater. So the idea is you heat the heater up to the proper temperature to vaporize the fluid, and it varies from manufacturer to manufacturer and fluid composition to fluid composition, which is why you shouldn't ever mix fog fluids between different manufacturers' machines. It's not just marketing. Um, So it's a lot like the thermostat in your house. You bring it up to a certain temperature, you turn the heater off. If it drops, you turn it back on. Um, It's like the home HVAC, and the pump moves the fluid into the heater, and it vaporizes the fluid, and it comes out of the other side as an aerosol. So it changes from a liquid to a vapor and then uh, turns into an aerosol as it hits the cool air on the the output side of the machine. Um, One of the important things that's built into that is the pump gets locked out when the heater isn't up to temperature, so you don't have scalding fluid or wet fluid spewing out of the front side of the machine, making a a mess or potentially hurting people. Um, But from a safety side, um, proper thermal management is very important. You want to make sure that you're not burning the fluid because it's then it's not safe to breathe, which is one of the things that can happen with um, improper fluid mating. which also means if you're burning it, you're going to clog up the heating element. So that goes down to product durability as well. Well, thank you. Uh, and so, you know, in, in your experience with um, the managing uh, the, the, the fog line, so you manage the entire fog line, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the challenges in, in that, in, in that kind of job or in the specific job, and what are the rewards in that kind of job or in the specific job? Um, in that particular case, um, you know, I, from an early time at Roscoe, I think one of the things that's just exciting for me as a technician was I remember playing my first fog machine when I was like 13, 14 years old, and I started doing community theater, and um, fog is a sexy product to play with. You know, you turn the machine on, it makes something cool. Um, it's big and it's exciting. Um, you know, plugging a light on and, or plugging light in and turning it on only has a certain excitement factor. Right. Um, so effects products tend to be a little more exciting. I know they could be the bane of people's existence when they don't work. Um, but uh, Roscoe recently discontinued the entire range of fog products and started over from the ground up. Uh, we hadn't done a, a product update in 15 years almost. Um, we had made some minor additions here and there, but we hadn't done anything big. Uh, so part of it for me was what do people really want in fog machines? Um, and I had mentioned before, it's what do people think they want? Uh, which sometimes are two different things. Uh, I have automatic climate control in my car, and I found no matter what I set the temperature to, I'm either cold or hot because it's constantly opening and closing the damper to try and keep me comfortable. What I really want is a knob that goes between red and blue that I can just tweak and leave it there. Um, So sometimes people come out and they think they want things, but, you know, of course that adds cost, so it's things that people aren't willing to pay for that they don't use every day. Um, We had a long internal conversation of, does RDM belong in a fog machine? And we said okay, well, what value does it bring? Um, so if the console actually has talk back that people are using, can it say, I'm ready? Can it say, I'm low on fluid? Um, can I address it remotely? But outside of that, there's not a whole lot else that you can do. Um, when Wybron came out with their uh, Infogate software, it was one of the really impressive things is that I think they used the technology well. Um, I was sad to see it didn't get a high adoption rate, um, but you can run the dimmer rack. It would tell you what scroller is sitting in what dimmer. Um, It would tell you the life of your gel string. It would tell you the gel string temperature. And for people who geek out over numbers like I do, all that stuff is really exciting. It would give you the ability to remotely address an entire rig. I think the technology was much better used there. Infogate had a chip that you could get with it to chip out other things. Um, But again, there's warranty issues with changing chips on other manufacturers' equipment. Um, I'm hoping that there's a future with a standards committee somewhere that says... Um, 
yes, we're going to adopt a certain standard. Everybody says the same thing. Um, we're going to use pins four and five finally and not just leave them uh, delegated for open future use. Right. Um, I know some people are using them for other things now, but there's no standard as to what happens with pins four and five. We only talk about one, two, and three in the TMX standard. Um, but getting back to what was exciting about it, um, it was how do we make it better? Um, you know, Roscoe's certainly not known for doing Me Too's. Um, we wanted to do something different. Um, one of the things I found is I wanted a digital DMX interface. It was one of the things that came up with a lot of people. Um, dip switches have gone the way of the dodo, in my personal opinion. Um, if you show a dip switch to a college student these days, they'll look at you like you have three heads and go, what is that? And then you try and, if you're overly technical, explain binary to somebody and go, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, everybody now has an app on their iPhone to go, okay, I need to set this to channel, um, you know, 326. And it tells you what dip switches to push down rather than actually learning to do the math and understanding what it's doing. Um, and possibly even worse are plastic uh, turn pots where um, I think all of us are guilty at some point, no matter how much we know better, that we can't find a precision screwdriver. So you whip out your Gerber tool or your Leatherman. And you try and gently give it a turn, and you promptly grind the plastic down to the point where it's unusable. Um, or the arrow, which was embedded in the plastic, is now gone, so you can't tell what it's addressed to without a little bit of trial and error. Um, so, you know, the R&D You can tell it's either zero or five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the R&D team came back and said, this is going to add X cost to the product. We don't think it's necessary. And I said, no, it really is. Um, being able to address something by holding down a button, and we designed an interface that was very similar to the IQ. Um, and I think a lot of people have used that so you can understand. It's a three-button, right. button for up, button for down, and a button for, yes, I want to save this information. Um, but, you know, the, the big thing that people came to us and said was, it has to work. It has to work out of the box. You know, you cringed when I said, you know, effects are exciting. And it's like, well, yes, when they work. When they work. <laughs> um, it has to work consistently. Um, you know, the, pro- the product needs to work the way it's designed to. And it needs to be durable. I need to not run over it with a forklift, but it, it needs to be able to take a little bit of a beating. Um, theaters are certainly a little more gentle than uh, rental scenarios are because it's getting transported and going in and out of a box and shipping. Um, but we tried to nail all those things down and make it user-friendly. So um, there's no set of menus that you have to step through to turn things on and off. There's an analog remote control on it that has a knob. Um, if you want fine control, you can get that out of DMX. You can get 255 steps. Right. Um, but for the most of us who are operating things manually, I don't want to sit in the dark and press through menus that have code on them um, or even you know, long display screens. I want to grab the thing. I want to turn it on and use it. I don't think the requirement was um, it has to be elegant. The requirement was it has to be easy to use. Um, there's no reason somebody shouldn't be able to pick up a smoke machine and use it intuitively. Um, and I'm hoping that's the direction a lot of people are looking at is I, I want it to be intuitive that. to pick this thing up and use it. Equipment smarter than operator. Yes. Um, I like into a dead halt there. I'm sorry about. That. <laughs> I, was, I was just listening. I stopped thinking about what the next thing was going to be. Um. Oh right, uh, Legoland. Uh, so can you tell me a little, a little bit about the Chima project? I think it was a Legoland thing. Uh, yeah, it was something that went up on our blog. Um, one of the things that we try and do is highlight where our customers use product in interesting ways. Um. I'm listening. <laughs> um, so uh, what had happened in this particular case was uh, they had budgeted to have uh, a waterfall in the attraction and some type of a 
Um, I think somebody's grinding coffee in the other room. Um, <laughs> uh, and some type of uh, pool on the floor. And this is one of those things where designers say, I want it to look like this. And they send you a picture or they send you video. And then it falls upon the creative people to go, okay, how do we accomplish this? Um, Jeremy Pankos, who's one of the techs down there uh, who was working really heavily on the project, called me up and said, hey, what do you have that can do this kind of stuff? And manufacturers love getting those calls because it gives us the ability to play. Yeah. Um, and it gives us the ability to say that we have a little bit of expertise in X area or um, go talk to Jason. He knows more about this than I do. Again, it's the, um, the circle of friends and the, the networking part of working in this industry. Uh, so they ended up specking a X24, which is a uh, water ripple projector. It does lots of other things, but it does water really, really well. Um, I've, I've used it for fire. It works great for that, too. works great for fire. Um, we've done them for architectural where they have swimming shark shadows and corporate logos that roll through them. Oh, very cool. Um, uh, it does an amazing aurora borealis. You lose a lot of light because you're running two dichroic filters to achieve the effect. But the color shifting happens because you have two dichroic filters that are moving and you're changing the way that they interact with the lamp. Um, I'm digressing a little bit. But they also um, looked at a GAM product, uh, which was a film cartridge, a SX4, to do the waterfall on the back wall where the water really wasn't sustainable. So they brought lighting design in. Um, Roscoe acquired GAM a year ago last March. Um, as part of a, uh, I don't want to say a, an expansion, but what basically had happened was uh, Roscoe and Gam always had this mutual admiration of each other. And by Roscoe and Gam, I mean uh, Stan Miller, who owns Roscoe, and Joe Tweel, who founded and uh, owned Gam products. And a lot of the Roscoe employees came out of the field. We all loved using Gam products, including Gam Color. Um, it's okay to say it a little more loudly now, but um, Gam's Congo Blue is always a go-to for me. Right. Um, you know, we all work in different color systems. Uh, we used to say it under our breath a little bit more than we do now. Um, but the products competed some, um, and there wasn't a whole lot of overlap. And when Joe was looking to move on to a stage in his life, he called up Stan and said, I really want my legacy to live on. Um, I don't want to just see it disappear. I don't want to see it get cannibalized somewhere. Uh, so Roscoe's commitment was this stuff falls well within our world of expertise. Um, it's color and it's animation effects for the most part and gobos. Um, it's a beautiful range of products. It's different enough from ours. And we brought it on, and we're keeping it branded the way it is. Um, we're keeping the manufacturing processes oh, the way that they are with a lot of things. Uh, so it was really an opportunity to um, allow these products to live on in the world as well. I think that's, that's, that's a great thing for, I think, for everyone, you know, and I think especially for, you know, again, for end users, it's kind of great uh, because I, I know that I had a difficulty in a lot of cases obtaining GAM product. Yeah, because especially in New York, it's very Roscoe, 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 and there were devices like SX, <laughs> like SX four that, um, which then and that's and that's a projector that that you add into an ellipsoidal spotlight, right? Yeah, it goes. Um, you take the entire uh, shutter and uh, lens housing assembly off the front, and forgive me, the folks at EDC are probably screaming right now. <laughs> um, the thing that the lens barrel slips into. And you drop the SX4 in place, and that lens barrel piece is already bolted to the front of it, so you drop your lens back in. Um, and it gives you the ability to um, primarily, a lot of people use it, to put a film loop in. Um, so it's like a, a big circular gobo, so you could do animation that way. Um, it also has a uh, an effects tray, which will give you a disc, like an animation wheel will for a moving light. Um, there's a gobo changer and a... B size and a M size as well, so it's a four or six gobo tray. Um, I had actually never heard of this. It's very cool, you know. And it's one of those things. Um, 
Roscoe's one of our biggest strengths in the market is distribution and getting product out in front of people. Um, but you know, going back to my original point, one of the nice things is rely on the manufacturers, make friends. Um, we're real people. We, we want to be real people. Um, we all have friends in the industry, but manufacturers are more than happy to say, yeah, we'd like to help you solve a problem. We can't necessarily come out on site and help you all the time, but we certainly have um, local people all over the place who certainly know what they're doing. They know the products. Um, we like solving problems just as much as everybody else does. And uh, one of the great things is if we can't help solve a problem and it, everybody's really interested in it, uh, that's where new product development comes from. Uh, new products come from people needing stuff. It's not that we sit in the laboratory and go, hey, it'd be cool if we did this. Um, you know, we have to prove to everybody and to ourselves that somebody's actually going to be interested in it and buy it. And the best thing is, yeah, somebody needed it and we made it. So that's something that's, something that's worth knowing for um, for all of the end users, that they should reach out to manufacturers when they need assistance, when they need uh, advice. Um, and what's the best way to do that, at least in the case of Roscoe? Um, we have one eight hundred number set up. It's one eight hundred Roscoe NY. Um, go to the website. Everybody's emails are out in the open there. Everybody's phone numbers are there. Um, you can call the office at you know any time of the day. Uh, it'll transfer over to Los Angeles after five o'clock on the East Coast. And you'll get an extra three hours of support, um, which is fantastic to know. We also have offices in London, Madrid, uh, Sydney, Toronto. Um, we're scattered all over the place. Um, but the other thing is, if somebody has a great product idea, we're always willing to listen. Some of our you know, better product ideas came out of the industry. For um, example? Uh, the Image Pro is a great example. Oh, um, yeah. It's the uh, print-to-go-bow on your inkjet printer on a special piece of transparency film. And you drop it into the iris slot. It gives you a little fan to circulate cool air and a piece of protective glass. And they last between 35 and 50 hours. Really what it depends on is how much black is in there. Um, the black, obviously blocks light and you're whacking photons against dye. Um, but, you know, in the case of I need a custom gobo for one day for a wedding right. and I want it in color, they're not going to spend hundreds of dollars unless you're working a really high-profile event to get three custom And even then they might not. And even then, yeah. <laughs> to get three full-color custom gobos. Um, but in this case, the thing needs to last four hours. So uh, the retail on an iPro slide, if we make it or you buy the kit, is 35 bucks. And you could put up whatever you want on the wall, and then you could either give it to them at the end of the night, and they can keep it as a keepsake and take it out of its frame, or they can chuck it. Um, but it's one of those adding value to production things. Um, but that was uh, brought to us by Casey Hooper, uh, who's a former employee who uh, was in the industry at the time and said, hey, I've got this idea for this great thing. And he sort of had one kind of cobbled together from his garage, and we took it and finished it up. And um, it's a, a nice little product now. It's proven pretty successful, as from what I can see. <laughs> It has definitely saved me once when we had a crew member step on a glass gobo um, before th- a show started. <laughs> or the other thing is... Um, nice to have it. You know, you can use it for rehearsals. You can use it for mock-ups. Yep. Um, you can use it to play with keystoning um, to That's an excellent figure point. out how keystoning works. Um, mm-hmm. Our art lab in Texas is very good at helping people with keystoning. Um, we could actually send people target grids. And they can line up how the target grid works so we can manipulate the artwork appropriately. I was going to say, you can do that with the gobos. I mean, if I sent you in something and said, hey, I would like this produced, um, I'm projecting on a wall that's curved and I need to make sure that it doesn't look keystoned and out of... Yeah, and for, is there? There's a whole math method to there, that. There too, is right? a I'm lot of math behind it. These are all the things that we all <laughs> that forgot was in I school. Found interesting. Well, that's that, that's a spherical <laughs> mapping thing, and I, I I wonder if that's a little outside of the you know outside what you'll, what you'll provide for free. 
Um, I think it depends on how complex it is. Uh, you certainly got to have your stuff together to yeah. get help with it. You need to be able to give distances and angles and sizes and shapes. Right. Um, but there is. But you have that ability to help. There's certainly some yeah. help that's available. Which is great. Um, or uh, I've seen people do light masks with gobos, which is something people don't realize you could do. If you put a target grid in the fixture, you take a picture of it, and you take the artwork on a piece of paper and black it out where you want it blacked out, we can make you a, a custom mask as a gobo. Oh. Um, for a lighting fixture, we've done that a few times as well. I uh, see. I had somebody who wanted a, an octagon or some multi-trapezoidal-shaped uh, light, and they didn't have enough shutters in the fixture, so we made them up a custom gobo to fit their needs. That's very cool. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I think we're coming to the end here, but uh, I know one one more question I wanted to ask you is, you know, I think we've all had mentors. Um, who are the people that you learned the most from, and the things that you that you learn things you you still carry them with you now, and you're able to use, uh, you know, just way you know, either at Roscoe or when you're working independently. Oh, uh, what are, what are some of those things? Um, this is one of those questions that everybody wishes they had more time with, isn't it? Um, my buddy Ken certainly has been a, a big mentor to me um, in my personal life and in business. Uh, you know, having a best friend is always one of those things that they come out of the blue sometimes and tell you things about yourself that you just didn't have any clue about. Um, uh, there's a, an employee at Roscoe named Derek Tishman who was the Fog product manager before me. He's been at the company for over 20 years now. Um, it may be 25. Uh, he sort of took me in when I started the company doing tech support and uh, taught me a lot of the ropes. Um, Roscoe certainly has been responsible corporately for giving me a background in business, uh, which is something that you don't see in a lot of places. You know, it's, you see a lot of job applications, and it's relevant industry experience expected for X number of years, um, unless you're willing to start, you know, uh, wherever it is, the entry-level positions. Um, but those two people in particular have been a, a really big influence on me personally and um, helping me develop my background in the industry. Um, but, you know, one of the important things, too, is having a, a support system behind the scenes. Uh, my wife is certainly a huge supporter for me. Um, you know, you've got to go home at some point. Um, you can't sleep in a road box, and you can't sleep in your car all the time. Um, but having somebody who's there for you and having a life outside of work, I think, is a really important thing to uh, keeping people going and um, keeping everybody a little bit more sane. So, All right. Teresa? I'm good. Okay. This is awesome. Thanks very much for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. This it has was been great fantastic. To meet you. <laughs> really fabulous having you on the show. Cool. Hope you have a lovely afternoon. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Thank you to Matt DeLong. Remember to check out Roscoe.com to see what they can offer and how they can help. Thank you to my co-host, Teresa Unfried from Taj Event Productions at TajEventProductions.com. Don't forget to visit us at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at podcastinglight, and on Facebook. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for joining us, and have a good show. <laughs>